If you want to open up your Bibles to Micah, we're looking at chapter 6 and the whole of the chapter. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear the mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balaam, king of Moab, plotted, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your Lord, uh, God. Listen, the Lord is calling to the city, and to fear your name is wisdom. Heed the rod and the one who appointed it. Am I still to forget your ill-gotten treasures, you wicked house, and the short ephah, which is accursed? Shall I acquit someone with dishonest scales, with a bag of false weights? Your rich people are violent, your inhabitants are liars, and their tongues speak deceitfully. Therefore, I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. I will eat but not be satisfied. Your stomach will be still empty. You will store up and save nothing because what you save I will give to the sword. You will plant but not harvest. You will press olives but not use the oil. You will crush grapes but not drink the wine. You have observed the statutes of Omri and all the practices of Ahab's house. You have followed their traditions. Therefore, I will give you over to ruin and your people to derision. You will bear the scorn of the nations. There was a butcher who had come to the end of his week and he had uh, one final chicken, whole raw chicken to sell. And near the end of the closing of the day, uh, a lady came in and walked up to the counter and said, I would like uh, to know, do you have any chickens? And he said, yes, I, ha- I have one. And he reached down and he put it on the scales. And she looked at it and he said, will you take it? Hoping to get rid of this last chicken. And, he, and she ummed and I said, well, you have anything heavier, bigger? Well, he was desperate. So he takes it and makes a show of going back under the counter and he comes back out with a, another chicken. It's the exact same one. He puts it on the scales. But this time he leans on the scales with his finger to make it weigh about half a kilo more. And he says, what about that? What do you think? She looks at him and says, yes, that's perfect. I'll take both. And I, I, heard, I remember hearing that sermon uh, when I was in grade seven. My dad gave it as an opening illustration. And I still remember because the first thing I thought was, I know what I'd say. 
I, what would you say? I mean, what if you would do if you're the butcher? What would you do? Do you come clean? I, was, I knew it. I, th- I thought I would say, sorry, I have a regular, and they've asked for one, and there's only two left. And so when the sermon finished, I raced up to Dad at morning tea time, like, I know what I would do. This is how I'd get out of it. I think he was proud of me, though it kind of was the opposite to his sermon, and I've actually forgotten his sermon. All I remember is this one story and how I would be creative and get out of this sinful problem. I think it reflects our human hearts, isn't it? We are often greedy and getting ourselves into problems. And instead of coming clean, we, we get deeper and deeper. And often it's, there's, a, there's a real greed that uh, causes us to do things like that, to lie and to cheat and get ahead. And that's why Micah is a book that, though written to a very different context, uh, still speaks into our, into our lives. Well, let's begin by understanding the, the kind of context of where the book was written and, and what it came, how it came to be. So, have your Bibles open. Let's go to the very first verse of this book. And often you'll find in uh, all the books of the Bible, particularly the prophets, the very first verse will help you understand who wrote it, to who is it written, when and where. So, Micah chapter 1, verse 1, first book, the first verse, the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah the vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So who is it written by? Well, it's written by a prophet called uh, Micah. He lives in Moresheth, which is about 35 kilometers southwest of Jerusalem. Uh, he's writing from the southern kingdom. Remember, if you know your, your history of God's people, at this point there's been civil war and the north and the south have separated. The north is called Israel. The south is called Judah. So it's written by Micah, who is it written to? Well, he says it's concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. They're the, they are, there it is up there already. It, they are the capital cities of the northern and southern uh, nations. And so he's writing to both the people, but he's writing to all people, really. We are all listening in. Uh, when is it written? We can see the star there of where Micah is labeled. Uh, it's after the split and right around the time where the northern kingdom would be invaded by Assyria and wiped out. And Assyria would march up to the gates of Israel, and, uh, of, of Jerusalem, but fail to conquer Jerusalem and, and go away. And so that is when it's written. We know that because he names the kings. He names that, the, I think, was it? Uh, the kings were Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So um, Jotham, okay, Ahaz, terrible, and Hezekiah, good. So, that is our, our context. Uh, what is the structure of the book? The structure of the book falls into three cycles. Each cycle is the same. Uh, one to th- two, and then three to five, and six to seven. They start with a call to hear, and then there's judgment, and then there's hope. The call to hear, you'll see at, the, at each of the start of those sections. So, chapter one, uh, verse two, Chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 6, verse 1. And this call to hear is the word Shema. So in Hebrew, uh, he says, Shema, Israel. Shema, Judah. Listen. Three cycles, call, judgment, hope. And we are going to look at the last cycle. Chapter 6 and 7. We heard it read. Uh, Kayla read it to us. We're going to look at that section. So let's do that. And the first heading I have uh, for that section is called, A God Who Punishes Sin. But of course, before we talk about judgment, it starts with a call, right? Shema. So we hear it there, Micah 6, verse 1. Listen, Shema, to what the Lord says. Stand up, 
plea my case before the mountains, let the hills hear what you have to say. A scene, like many of the Minor Prophets, is a courtroom-style scene. Uh, God calls the mountains as judges and says, kind of, judge me and judge Israel. And these mountains have been there and witnessed all that's happened in the land. And so God will begin by laying out his case, and then Israel respond as defendant and lay out their case. And so God begins, uh, and, he, and we see that in verses 3 to 5, as God kind of declares his case to the mountains against his people. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent you Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered? Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. You can hear the kind of language of heartbreak and, and betrayal. I, I kind of, for me, it's almost like the picture of a, let's say a wife who's found out her husband's been unfaithful to her, and she turns to him and says, you know, what have I done to deserve this? How I've loved you through thick and thin. I was there when you were sick and there when you were unemployed, and this is how you treat me? Have you forgotten all that I've done for you and you've you betrayed me? The feeling of heartbreak and betrayal. And he lists out the things he's done. I've redeemed you. I saved you from slavery. I sent you leaders. I protected you from other nations. And yet you're weary with me? You're burdened by me? Well, now it's time for God's people to respond. And we read it in verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord? And bow down before the exalted God. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Let's go back to that scene of broken relationship. I can just imagine the husband turning to his wife and saying, What do you want from me? I said, I'm sorry. I mean, is that enough for you? Do you want more? Do you want me to, how about I sell my car and buy you jewelry? Would that make you happy? Do you want me to sell my kidney and buy you a new house? How about that? Would that please you? Kind of, how unreasonable are you? To rip out my heart, hold it out to you. That's the kind of dramatic language Israel's saying. God says, you've broken my heart. And they say, what do you want, God? You want a calf? How about a thousand rams? Would that make you happy? Gigaliters of oil, rivers, thousands of rivers of oil. Would that please you, God? What if I kill my child? Kill my kid for you. Would you be happy? And I imagine if I was the wife in that scenario, I'd probably say, no, I, I don't want you to rip your heart out. I just want some love from that heart. And that's what, that's what God says. We come to that, that verse that we probably all know. Micah 6, verse 8 what does God say to that? He says, well, I, he's shown you, O mortal, what he's good. And what does the Lord require of you? Ah, justly, love mercy. I walk humbly with your God. God says, I don't want this extreme religiosity. I don't want you, I don't want you, I don't want you, you know, all these thousands of sacrifices. I just want you. I just want you to love. I want you to love others and love me. That's not too hard. Who, who learned 
Matt, um, Mike, uh, six verse eight is a memory verse in, in like some point in their lives. Put your hand up. Got a sticker and a sticker book for it, maybe. Yeah, I did too. No one really explains the context. It's God saying, all I wanted was this, and you're terrible at it. And you never give it to me. <laughs> I always thought it was like a really positive verse. It kind of is, but the context is pretty terrible. God says, I wanted love, and I wanted you to love others, and, and, and all you think I want is what? For you to give me thousands of sacrifices, even your own children, like Moloch, the detestable God of the Assyrians. And so, for the rest of this section, really what we read here is that God is fleshing out what he wants, that this idea of act justly, and love mercy, and walk humbly with me. He just fleshes that out. And I'm going to read from verses 10 to 12, but I'm not going to use... Uh, my Bible, which is the NIV. I'm actually going to read it from the NIRV. That's the New International Reader's Version. Our kids use it at KidZone. It's actually an exceptional version. And if you don't like long sentences and you want it written a little clearer, um, I really recommend it. In fact, I found it so clear, I'm using it in my sermon right now. Let's hear it. Uh, Micah 6, 10 to 12. You sinful people, should I forget that you got your treasures by stealing them? Do you use dishonest measures to cheat others? I have placed a curse on that practice. Shall I forgive you for your dishonest use of scales? Use weights that weigh either heavier things or lighter than they really are. The rich people among you harm others. You always tell lies. You try fooling others by what you say. God says, you know, I see you as a prosperous nation, but you've done it through cheating. You shortchange people. You use scales that aren't balanced. Uh, you... You use force when necessary. You use lies. You are making a profit by crushing people below you. And for that, judgment is coming. Micah 6, uh, 13 and 16. 13, therefore, I've begun to destroy you and ruin you because of your sins. And 16, you have observed the statutes of Omri and all the practices of Ahab's house. You follow their traditions. Therefore, I'll give you over to ruin and your people to derision. You will bear the scorn of the nations. Now, this might feel a fair way away from you. I mean, like, who, for example, has ever used scales where you actually take physical weights and balance things? Anyone use scales like that? Surprisingly few for a nighttime congregation. Some of you people are young. I'd only heard about this from Andrew. He said, when I was a boy, (laughs) we used scales. Uh, I'm like, okay, sure. Um, Well, it's actually not a distant passage to us, I think, for different reasons. And, like, some, some of the application could be really immediate, Right? So immediate application for this is, is don't cheat. You know, when you go through Woolies, don't put everything through as potatoes. Actually weigh them as what they are. Um, God is watching and so is that little camera. Um, don't cheat on your taxes. Don't cheat if you have NDIS or Centrelink. Uh, don't exploit your workplace or cheat off their resources or their time. Uh, if you sell things on Marketplace, Facebook Marketplace, uh, don't cheat people. Don't sell fake NRL jerseys. Jacob received one once and it broke his heart and it broke others' hearts too. So be honest. But that's a small picture. I think there's a much, much, much bigger picture for us to understand. And we're blind to it because we live in, in the West, in a Western wealthy nation where we're all kind of breathing the same air. And that is, that is um, I'm thinking about modern slavery. So our wealthy nation is partly wealthy and prosperous because we deal dishonestly or underhandedly with other nations. We gain an advantage by not using balanced scales when we make our purchases. Uh, modern slavery practices. And so 
to, to understand this, and it's been a week of me understanding it. My sister works in this space as a consultant, and so she put me on some websites. Uh, and Walk Free is a great website. This is their website with their map. This is the Slavery Index map, which shows you the countries where this happens. Now, we're not thinking slavery like um, African slaves taken to America where they're owned by someone. That happens. We're thinking more diverse. We're thinking arranged marriages that lead to, to women in slavery or in poverty. We're thinking about people who are forced or placed in situations where they cannot refuse the work they're in and they cannot leave their workplace for fear of not having enough food to survive. And so it's much broader. 50 million people are estimated to live in essentially slavery conditions. Very few in Australia, though we have some. There's approximately 40,000 people in Australia who live in these conditions, often immigrants under visas. Uh, promised work here, only end up in farms, uh, disconnected from the rest of society, fruit picking. And the way it works is that in the West, we want to buy cheap things. I want a $10 shirt. Uh, shirts shouldn't cost $10, they should cost more than $10, but I want a $10 shirt. Uh, lucky for me, Jeans West rated five on the ethical scale this year, and so they'll sell me a $10 shirt. It costs them a lot more money than that if they were paying, being honest, but they find a supplier who'll sell to them even cheaper than $10. That supplier needs to make a margin, so they go to a sweatshop which will sell it for dirt cheap, but they need to make money, and so the sweatshop then employs people and pays them almost nothing so that they can sell me a shirt for $10. And to understand better and to put a face to some of this, here is uh, Nassine Sheikh. She is now a CEO and founder of Empowerment Collective. But these are her words from her experience. And she, uh, she leaves her home. She doesn't want to get stuck in a, uh, in a arranged marriage because uh, she sees where that goes and the poverty that brings. And so she flees to Kathmandu and she writes this. While I was in Kathmandu, I was exploited for forced child labor and fell prey to a massive organization of illegal sweatshops in the inner city slums. It was there that I realized my childhood, along with the childhoods of thousands of others, was being traded for a life of pure suffering, mal malnourishment, and industrial poisoning, happening on a scale unimaginable to the average consumer. I worked 12 to 15 hours per day, in a textile sweatshop, receiving less than the equivalent of two US dollars per grueling shift, only if I completed hundreds of garments. I ate, slept, and toiled in a sweatshop station the size of a prison cell. Even then, I knew in my heart that people would never choose to purchase these items if they truly understood who had made them. After breaking free of my exploitation, I came to America. And I went to a large chain store for the first time. I walked the aisles in disbelief looking at the thousands of products available for purchase in one location. I had never experienced levels of both luxury and convenience, and I was horrified to connect with the reality of those who had produced these products that I looked at. When I gazed upon the countless consumer goods, as I walked from aisle to aisle, I couldn't help but see the faces of the children in each of them and of the men and women's lives marred by poverty, inhumane working conditions, and unimaginable exploitation. The suffering woven into each fiber, reflected in every surface. That night, I just wept for the pain of this world. She's very upbeat, actually. And she ends by saying, for the 50 million people living in modern slavery around the world, the time for meaningful action and renewal commitment is now. And, and, and she has a real hope that things will change. Well, I decided to work out 
what my place in this was. And so I jumped on this website that was recommended to me uh, called Slavery Footprint. Basically, you take a survey, and it's, it's fairly long. It's, it's about uh, 10 minutes, and it's got really lovely infographics. I would recommend if you do this, and you should all do it, do fine-tune your surveys. There's a little menu on the left-hand side. Fine-tune it and be honest. And you put in all your details, and at the end, it tells you how many people live in slavery-like conditions so that you can enjoy your lifestyle. So I did it. Here are my disclaimers. I do think I live a very ordinary Australian lifestyle. I'll tell you my number, but first, I live in a three-bedroom, one-bathroom house, a couple of cars, a couple of kids, a couple of golf sets, one coffee machine. Um, all right. I had 77 people living in poverty because of my lifestyle. Isn't that amazing? I was shocked. Uh, I asked other people in the office to do it. The other men in the office did it. I won't say their numbers, but I wasn't the worst. But I won't name and shame that person. <laughs> It's confronting. Can I recommend trying it and, and understanding your, your place, your story in this? And I can hear echoes of Micah 6. You know, here's, here's Micah saying, um, on behalf of God, you use dishonest measures and you cheat others. Should I forgive your dishonest scales? You harm people. You tell lies and fool others. I think we fool ourselves into thinking that I can spend as little as I want on as much stuff as I want and there's no consequences. And there just is. Now, it's not just an Old Testament thing. Let's go New Testament. Jesus talks about it. You have the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. I think that's Luke 16. You could check that out. Jesus' brother James writes about in his letter, uh, the epistle of James. He has a whole section. Let me just read two lines. Um, James 5 verse 4. Look, the wages... You fail to pay the textile workers, the, the, the garment manufacturers, or whatever you could think of. He, he used the illustration of harvesters who mowed your fields are crying out against you. Their cries have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You fatten yourself for the day of slaughter. And, and the message is judgment's coming. But this isn't a judgment's coming kind of sermon. I don't want to, like you walking away feeling guilty and burdened and, oh my goodness, if I don't, if I don't change my spending, I'm going to hell. That's, that is not my sermon because if you believe in Jesus, you've already been saved. There is no judgment for you. Uh, it's all paid for on the cross. You're not, you don't earn your way to heaven through ethical spending. That's just not the gospel. You're saved and you're secure in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's wonderful news. So then why should you bother changing your lifestyle if you're already saved? Micah 6, verse 8 was a useful memory verse after all. Do you remember it? Still remember it? Um, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you to act justly, love mercy, and will come with your God. Come on, sharpen that up. Sunday school wasn't that long ago. That's what we do. We do this because we love God. And we want to love like He loves we want to love mercy and we want to love justice and we want to walk humbly with our God. And that is the motivation. Not a fear of judgment because we're not going to face judgment. It's, it's because we love God, we want to be like Him. And that changes the way we, we, we live. Okay? Now, this sounds overwhelming, but here are, some, here are four simple things you can do to actually make a tangible difference. All right? Uh, first is be informed. I start the week knowing none of this. And then spend a week understanding it and being horrified at it. Uh, and I use some great websites to do that. Uh, this one's a really good one. You can be informed about your own footprint. You could go to uh, Walk Free, which is the Global Slavery Index. Very accessible. I mean, 
it's full of infographics. It's not hard to read. Uh, I I'm sure you'd all find it easy to understand and uh, lots of great resources there. You could go to an Oxfam's website. Again, a very good organization which thinks through how to help people and see more equality across our globe. So be informed. Take some time this week um, and look through some of these websites. I'll put them up on Facebook later. Next is you can shop ethically. So you get to vote. And not like our referendum where you get one vote. You get, you get lots of votes. I mean, you get thousands of votes. Every dollar is a vote. Where you spend your money shapes our world. So I was talking to my sister, Katie, who's a consultant in this space, and she said, well, if you went to Woolworths and you only bought what you thought was ethical, now, not that Woolworths is, you know, some great moral organization, but they will follow the money. And if people spend it on certain ethical products, they will look for those suppliers who sell that product, who will then find that product from ethical manufacturers and farms. So when you spend your money at Woolies, it directly affects where they go for their supply chain. You could pick one area. Instead of being overwhelmed by everything, you could pick, for example, clothing. And you could jump on the Baptist World Aid website, an Australian website, and they list in their ethical fashion guide every company, basically, in Australia sells clothing. And you could look it up. And that's where I knew that Jeans West has a rating of five. And uh, Connor, which dresses all good ministers, like Andrew and myself, is 37, which is, eh, not great. It's out of 100, if you're wondering. But you can look through, and you can change the way you spend your money. You might be surprised that some of the stores you think might be good are actually doing really good things. And this website explains their scores, why they achieved what they achieved. Will it cost you more to buy more ethically? Yeah, probably. That's kind of the point. We should stop just trying to spend as little as we can and get as much as we can and give a fair wage. Uh, you can do it with other foods. Who likes chocolate? Put your hand up. I like everyone, right? Who likes coffee? Keep your know, hand up. Yeah, um, these are massively uh, shipped raw materials. I mean, coffee is the biggest raw material shipped after fossil fuels. And it's also a space where a lot of forced labor is used. So uh, if coffee is complicated, and sadly, there's not a great system for measuring fair trade in that. But in cacao beans, so chocolate, there is. And so you can go to the chocolate scorecard. This is a website which ranks all major chocolate distributors and explains if they're ethical in the way they are they traceable, uh, do they support development, have they got processes in place, and you can find out what chocolate you should buy. And there's lots of options. Stop, you know, stop hyperventilating. You'll find plenty of chocolate at Woolworths for you. Uh, Whitaker's and Nestle, for example, are pretty great, uh, where this year Cadbury refused to release any of their information and decided to not um, play ball. And so you can make a decision on where you spend your money. Uh, next is you can reduce waste and consumption. If food waste was a country, it would be the third biggest emitter of greenhouse gases after USA and China. If you got rid of food waste, it'd be like taking one quarter of the cars off our planet. Every year there's always enough food produced to feed all humans but one in nine are malnourished, which is like 740 million people. And so uh, Oz Harvest is a big advocate for this, and they do a lot of practical things, but also advocacy for it. Their encouragement is don't overshop. Don't waste food. Don't waste plastic. Uh, try to reduce that spending. I don't know if you knew this, uh, but a way, one of the ways Australia keeps its nation nice and pristine is we ship are vast megatons of our waste to poor countries. 
to deal with. How do you keep Australia beautiful? Well, you don't leave a dump, you don't make it a dump, you, you make um, Vietnam your dump. And so currently we ship huge amounts of our tires and hazardous waste and plastic products to third world nations so we don't have to deal with it. Now by reducing our quantity of spending and waste, we could help uh, stop that. You, for example, uh, could have a no buy November. Just buy food in November and not do any shopping for clothes or tech or whatever else hobbies you have. Um, difficult for me to recommend since it's my birthday month, but maybe put a little, a little like fine print in there um, or buy me a present tomorrow. But you could do something like that, no buy November, and actually see what is it like to not constantly need to consume, consume, consume products. Lastly, be an advocate. Every one of those websites I've mentioned has an advocacy section where you can go and you can find um, ways to sign petitions, write letters, share information, uh, yeah, talk to your local member and deal with these issues and be an advocate for people who have no ability to advocate for themselves. So there's four things. They're not, you don't have to do them all. You can just pick one or two to try. Be informed. Uh, pick one area to start shopping ethically. Think about your wastage. Could you reduce your plastic and your wasted food? And could you maybe share one article or one thing on Facebook this week or sign one petition? I reckon there's hope. I am upbeat that we will see change in our world. And I think Christians should be the first to lead that charge, shouldn't we? Of all people, Christians should be the first ones who put our hands in our pockets and spend correctly. All right, let's get back into Micah. Where are we? We have the call. We have the judgment. We're in the third cycle. And we have the hope. Because the book of Micah is a book of hope. It's not primarily a book of judgment. It's a book of hope. And so we are in our last section, the last section of the book, a God who delights to show mercy. The hope section starts in chapter 7, uh, verse 7. But as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Savior. My God will hear me. So Israel will face judgment for their greediness and their sins. But the, the point of Micah is to say hope is coming. Just powerful hope is coming. And so Israel says we'll wait. We'll wait and we'll put our hope in the Lord. How will hope arrive? What will hope look like? Jump down to verse 14, chapter 7. Hope looks like a shepherd. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, which lives by itself in a forest in fertile pasture lands. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of long ago. The image is that a shepherd's going to come. He's going to take God's people and he's going to take them to the greenest areas of the pastures. Um, you know, Bashan and Gilead, like saying, and you know, you'll be shepherded on the green tablelands of Melander and Atherton, the, the places where you expect to see grass. And, and he's saying, the shepherd will care for you and he will bring salvation. Now, we know who that shepherd is, right? And Israel was ready for that shepherd in many ways. Fast forward to Matthew chapter 2. Wise men travel far, they're looking for a great king. So, where do they go for a king? They go to Jerusalem and they go to the palace and Herod is shocked when he, when he hears them knock on the door and they say, where's the little baby king? He's terrified. He asks the religious leaders, the, the, the priests of Israel, and they go away and they come back and they say this. We're in Matthew 2, verses 5. In Bethlehem in Judea, they reply, for this is what was written in the prophet. Guess which prophet they're referring to? That's right, it's Micah. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. Out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people. It's Micah 5, 
verses 2 and 4. The shepherd of Micah will come, and he comes as Christ. And Jesus would say in John 10, I am the good shepherd, and my sheep know my voice, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for my sheep. And Jesus comes, and he forgives us of all our greed and injustice, and he loves us, and he saves us, and the image in Micah 7 is just beautiful. Micah 7, 18. Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. It's a play in the name Micah. Micah means, uh, who is like Yahweh? And here, right near the end of the book, who is like you, God? Uh, Micah kind of writes his own name in the book. No one is like you. What do you delight in? What brings you great joy? For my grandmother, it's serving food to people. Whose grandmothers are like that? Love to feed you, right? Yeah. So we'd go there and be a three-course meal and it'd just be morning tea. It's the kind of like a grandmother who loves to feed you. And she never cooks the same recipe twice. She just loves trying new food. And now she's a lot older. Emma decided she would call her and check if we can come for morning tea and then drive straight there to limit the time she can cook for us. And so it's like eight minutes to her house. And we get there and knock on the door and there's a huge feast. You know, I don't know what she did in eight minutes. She must have run to the shops and back, but it's just food everywhere. And she eats the tiniest volume and then we take it all home. And I feel a bit guilty, like I'm a burden. And then I realized she delights in feeding us. So why should I feel burdened? I should delight in receiving her food. Her delight is to hear the knock of the door and know that she gets to feed us. If you say to God, God, what do you delight in? What, what, what delights you? He would say, I delight in mercy. That's what delights me. I delight in showing you mercy. When I hear the knock of the door, you've come to confess your sins. I think, oh, fantastic. I get to pour out more mercy. I've been waiting for this. He enjoys forgiving you more than you enjoy being forgiven. Let that sink in. He loves to forgive. He loves mercy. We should change the way we think of him. He's not begrudgingly out of sense of duty. Like my grandmother, he, it's a joy. Oh, the joy to show you mercy, to give it. And we shouldn't feel burdened taking his mercy. We should enjoy his mercy. Let's keep going. Beautiful image, isn't it? Verse 19, you will again have compassion on us. You will, not tread, on our sin, you will tread on our sins on the foot and hurl our iniquities, all our iniquities, into the depths of the sea. What makes a good shepherd? Um, many things, but two is power and gentleness. So a shepherd needs to be powerful, but not just powerful. If they're just powerful and strong, they may hurt their sheep, uh, especially the, the little ones. But if they're just gentle, they won't be able to protect the sheep. So a good shepherd is powerful and gentle. And that's our shepherd, Jesus. He's powerful and gentle. He's gentle. He has compassion on us. That's what it says. You have compassion on us but he's also powerful. In the Garden of Eden, the snake, Satan as a snake, comes and whispers temptation to Eve. And what should Adam have done? He's right there. Should have grabbed that snake out of the tree, thrown it on the ground and jumped on it, underfoot, and trampled it to death. He didn't. He listens and sinned. And then God says, one day I'll send someone to trample the snake. And here Micah says, um, thank, thank you God, for coming and trampling upon our sins underfoot. 
for, for crushing Satan, for crushing our sins, for being the strong shepherd, the powerful shepherd who can crush Satan, temptation, and sin. That's the first part of the image. And the second part is a powerful shepherd hurling our sin far away. The deepest part in the ocean is called Challenger Deep. Uh, it's in the Western Pacific, I believe. And it's 11,000 uh, meters deep. 11,034, I think, to be precise. That's like one and a third Mount Everest, downwards. Now, just imagine you're on a little boat, like a tour boat, over Challenger Deep, and you want to get that Instagram shot. And so you get your phone over the water, and a wave hits you, and you drop your phone, it splashes in. And then it sinks for like three hours until it lands in the bottom of the ocean, crushed by immense weight and in total darkness. I imagine the tour guide would say, well, I think you're not getting your phone back. That's the image, isn't it, here? This is the incredible image of how God treats us in our sin. Where he says, you hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Our strong shepherd takes us in. He throws a deep far away into the challenge deep, to sink to the very bottom. And what's the point? The point is, it's not coming back. You're not getting your sin back, so stop trying to fish for it. Stop trying to remember it. It's gone. Crushed under the darkness and weight of billions of tons of water. That's our shepherd. Gentle and powerful. And that's the book of Micah. That's how it ends. That's a book that calls us to hear. It challenges us in our greed and our injustice. But ultimately, it's a book about hope, about a shepherd who comes to deal with it, a shepherd who takes our sins and throws them infinitely far from us and delights in mercy. And may we be a people like him who delight in mercy. And it ends with that question, doesn't it? Who is like Yahweh? And the answer is no one. No one is like you, Yahweh. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for this book. We, we ask that its lessons will stick with us. Help us to be a people who support the weak and vulnerable, even though they're so far out of sight. And the temptation just to spend without thought of them is so easy. But help us to, to take some action this week, one of those four steps. Help us to do it and find joy in it. Not a sense of duty uh, that you may judge us, but knowing that judgment is past, that we want to do it because you love um, mercy and justice and you want us to walk with you. And may we do that well. And Father, thank you for the shepherd you sent us, Jesus Christ, that he's both gentle and, and powerful. And may we always find ourselves in his safe arms. We praise in Christ's name. Amen.